You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, I'm Jasmine Stoughton, and welcome back to another episode of the Mosaic Moment on PPI's Radically Pragmatic podcast. For those of you who don't know, Mosaic is a project at the Progressive Policy Institute that aims to put more women at the forefront of policymaking by empowering our experts with the tools and connections needed to engage with the media and lawmakers on today's toughest policy challenges. Today, we have on the podcast... Rachel Brooks is an intelligence analyst for global intelligence at Concentric, and she is also a Mosaic alumni. And then with her, Jordan Shapiro is our economic and data policy analyst here at PPI, and she'll be moderating this conversation. I'm going to turn it over to them and let them get into it. Hey, Rachel, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast today and chatting with me uh, about your work in the disinformation space. Really excited to kind of dig into some of the interesting uh, social, technical, and political challenges uh, focused on disinformation. So I guess we can just get started. We've all heard about disinformation, uh, whether we hear about it from Facebook, who will put a little uh, notice up on certain posts saying this could be misinformation, or we've heard about it in the news, or we you know, talk about it with our friends. But can we just maybe start by talking a little bit about what disinformation actually is and kind of setting the ground on what the definition is so that we're all on the same page? Absolutely. That's a great place to start. Um, And firstly, thank you so much for having me, Jordan. I'm delighted to be here with you on talking about this important topic today. Um, In terms of setting the stage, we can think about misinformation as spreading of unintentionally false information. So misinformation can manifest as internet users that are sharing hoaxes or conspiracy theories that they themselves believe to be authentic across social media. When we think about disinformation, on the other hand, That's the creation and spread of intentionally false information, often for political ends. So the key differentiator here is the intent. So a nefarious actor could knowingly launch false information, and that would be spreading disinformation, whereas users who see and share that information, believing it to be true, are then spreading it as misinformation. And the differentiator here is that disinformation campaigns often include an element to deliberately heighten misinformation for strategic purposes, and then it can just propagate across those social media platforms that we talked about. With the reach of social media, we know how quickly information, true or untrue, can spread. And so who are these people who would want to deliberately put out false information on the internet, you know, duping folks who maybe weren't experts on that topic? Definitely. I think you're, you're exactly right about the information environment. And currently we're dealing with this sort of infodemic, which the World Health Organization defines as this overabundance of information that makes it difficult for people to find trustworthy services and find that reliable guidance. And so I think attribution can sometimes 
be a tri tricky topic when we're talking about the start of disinformation. Um, in my research, I really focus on foreign governments that are using these campaigns to target democracies. Um, so there's state-sponsored actors, but there can also be um, assorted nefarious actors that are actually targeting this spread. Um, and we just to talk about foreign governments for a moment, we've seen numerous reports that disinformation is a central and pervasive tactic for the Kremlin um, or other entities that strategically further their policy goals. Um, and the State Department's Global Engagement Center produces a lot of really useful research on the breadth and scope of Russian disinformation, for example. Um, but when we were thinking about attribution, um, it's really an interesting topic. And my research has identified some of these networks of websites that often front as legitimate news outlets only to propagate false narratives to users. So as an analyst, when I'm looking for that question of attribution or, or the origin of the misinformation where it's starting as disinformation, I often look to open source intelligence from verified sources and researchers that are kind of mapping out those networks and attributing them to state-sponsored efforts or, or other entities online. That's really interesting that there are resources out there that provide uh, basically insider info as to where a piece of misinformation might have originated as disinformation. What is a average person supposed to do when they come across a piece of information and it seems interesting to them or maybe it makes them angry and they don't know where it's come from? How, how can an average person sort of dig into those insights uh, and find the attribution like you were just referring to? Oh, that's a great question. And I think one of the tricky parts about tackling it online is that if you identify um, and attribute the sources and maybe they're taken down from different social media platforms, it's really easy, cheap, um, and fast to kind of start it up again and kind of just, you know, operate under a different handle or a different name and kind of whack-a-mole in a sense of getting rid of these um, different outlets. Um, so I think there's that piece. But the question about what a typical person can do is a really interesting one, um, because as we're living in this infodemic, almost all of us are interacting with misinformation regularly, and most of our feeds are contaminated in, in some sort of way. Um, so there's some research from the Pew Research Center that reported um, about half of U.S. adults get their news at least sometimes from social media, and roughly a third regularly get their news from Facebook. Um, and that research is from September. And I think we're seeing these questions of trust also. So you're not necessarily always looking at the trust from the outlet. You might be looking at the trust from your friend who, you know, I know Jordan is really qualified. She's an analyst. She shared this. So I trust this content rather than kind of doing that due diligence. And I think it's tricky to put the onus on the individual sometimes because there's a place for digital literacy and education and fact checking, but we're just so inundated with information. So I think there's a big role for governments and the social media platforms to to play um, in policing this. That being said, it's a really challenging sort of balance with free speech and content moderation, particularly when the content is generated from users in, in real time. Um, so I think it's really important though too, because while disinformation isn't a new concept, the past few years of the pandemic have kind of shown us very real world consequences of how false information online for individual users um, can translate into real world belief systems and harms, whether that's about um, health information or, or other topics. Um, so I think that this is only gonna increase 
as a problem that needs to be tackled by both policymakers um, and the platforms. And individual awareness is a, is a part two, but um, I think when we're thinking about a forward look as well, um, I think this was in the New York Times recently that researchers leveraged um, chat GPT to show that they could create content easily that repeated misleading narratives and conspiracy theories. So as we're seeing AI's role in this, I think that's kind of an alarming advancement in the context of disinformation without those adequate regulations and guardrails. But I think on, on the individual level too, we can look to verify our sources, you know, fact check across a couple reputable sources as well, but realize that, you know, some of the systems and algorithms are set up to bring us towards, you know, content that's generating a lot of views and comments, which can sometimes be um, a bit more extreme or disinformation um, in a lot of ways as well. You bring up a really important contact, concept of trust, um, trust in information, trust in social media, trust in our institutions, and how disinformation is actually perhaps eroding some of that trust um, across the board. What is the incentive from disinformation actors and you know, specifically foreign governments, uh, which is what you addressed in your dissertation, uh, what is their incentive to spread this disinformation? Why is it advantageous to them to cause unrest or sow mistrust uh, in the American or in populace or in uh, amongst democracies? Absolutely. So I think you touched on a really important point that um, if trust is already eroding, it's really easy for some of these actors to to go in there and kind of amplify those societal divides and create additional problems. So I think often effective disinformation campaigns um, worsen existing societal divides, whether that's partisan lines um, or, or other topics, and kind of erode that trust even further from citizens um, within like democratic institutions or the information environment. I'm sure we've all seen this sort of um, play out. And once that trust is gone, it can be really challenging um, to rebuild as well. And when we think about how it's useful for um, different parties to sort of propagate it, um, like disinformation is useful in the context of authoritarian governments, which is one thing I get into in my dissertation, because it can kind of overwhelm that information environment, create that distrust, and then that enables um, them to obscure their actual actions that maybe are happening in other countries or contexts. So when a state's true actions are not necessarily favorable um, to be publicly known, um, spreading lies become a relatively fast and inexpensive strategic move to further those aims and influence public opinion. Um, and then when we think about it from a business case, um, disinformation provides entities like an easy, cheap, and rapid way to grow that distrust and destabilize democratic societies. Um, so I think democracy itself presents some unique opportunities and vulnerabilities when we're thinking about the pillars of public debate and free expression, but those same sort of pillars and opportunities are vulnerable in that state-sponsored actors can then exploit them through the spread of false information, um, making it seem as if it's public debate or free expression when it's knowingly false um, for the effort to further those strategic aims. It's sort of like the uh, straw that broke the camel's back if folks were already suspicious of an institution or a narrative that was coming out. If they see a lot of information that 
uh, perhaps feeds into that perspective of mistrust, then it sort of solidifies their perspective that they maybe were right all along or that they had some sort of enlightenment through this information. Exactly, Jordan. A lot of times it can be sort of this confirmation bias where you're looking for information and then it just kind of entrenches your existing beliefs. And I think one of the interesting insights from my dissertation research was thinking about um, trends within this space. So I was looking for, you know, overarching tactics that maybe authoritarian regimes use against democratic societies. And on this topic, so much of it depends on the individual dyads of countries, right? So what does that targeted country have within its society that's maybe a weak spot for, that's ripe for exploitation? Um, and then they kind of operate on those ways. And we can see, you know, that different countries, whether it's Russia or China, look to um, undermine faith in democratic processes and bring their unique histories or strategies um, but I think a lot of times it just decides on what that individual context and citizenship um, looks like and where that trust is already sort of eroding within their society. It seems to me like there's potentially an opportunity here if there are, per se, cracks in our systems or, or institutions that are being perhaps pointed out or illuminated by uh, nefarious actors, it perhaps provides an opportunity for America, for democracies to try to fill in those cracks and, and empower and reinvigorate uh, areas where perhaps we invigorate areas where perhaps there is eroding trust or challenges. Where What is the role of policymakers to enact these measures or to understand how misinformation or disinformation can actually be an opportunity to grow and move forward? Absolutely. Um, so I think that there's opportunities. I think even the most resilient um, democracies really need to protect their information environments from foreign or, you know, outside interference. And I think when we're looking at like even the news recently, a lot of times social media platforms are used for important policy announcements, you know, Twitter as an example. Um, and we're also seeing that there can be some sort of fragility for some of these private sector platforms during changes of leadership or different times. So I think there's a big role for policymakers um, in this context to decide the extent of regulation um, and government efforts to sort of tackle disinformation within the information environment. And then those decisions have ripples on content related to public health, climate issues, democracy itself. We're even seeing instances of these questions about disinformation for, versus pre, free speech being played out in federal lawsuits as we speak and really as a partisan sort of topic. So, for example, Missouri and Louisiana's attorneys general sued the White House um, and others on allegations that they forced social media platforms to suppress critic voices and in turn violated the right to free speech in the process. So we're seeing that some policymakers have often urged social media companies to fight disinformation and other harmful content online. Um, but then again, this case on the other, like on the other hand, accuses the White House of taking effort against such content too far rather than not far enough. So the topic of content moderation has, has become a partisan issue that's entangled with questions about free speech, 
which is likely to prevent um, present barriers that slow collaboration and progress when we're looking to curb online disinformation. The other issue is that technology is outpacing regulation and enacting measures to protect the information environment from these campaigns is critical, but can, can often be challenging. So it's easy for me to say, yes, we need to engender trust within our communities, but that can be a much harder thing to do um, when there are those existing divides. So I think to get to your question, policymakers play a really critical role in determining these standards. And I think a big role within that is partnerships among the US government, technology providers, and other collaborators to really determine what those standards should look like. When we're thinking about the balance between allowing for free speech to flourish, and this is something that the internet and social media and sort of the new information environment has allowed for more people to know more things, and this is inarguably a good thing. People are getting smarter over time with all of this access to information. And we want people to be able to continue to access that information, even information that maybe uh, isn't true or maybe isn't, um, you know, as broad or deep as the actual issue is. How can we think about systems that allow people to basically access perhaps mis and disinformation while still allowing for the kind of knowledge dissemination across the internet to happen. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the meatiest parts of this topic because public access to information is so important. And just, you know, I think I have a lot of respects for, for journalists who are facing, you know, issues like paywalls and how do we kind of balance this freedom of information with making sure that there's adequate time and funding to really fact check and all of those different aspects as well. So I think in some ways, like the open using generated context of some of these platforms really helps us get a handle on what the extent of disinformation and misinformation is out there. Um, one thing your question made me think of is that there's often closed messaging platforms when we're thinking about WhatsApp or WeChat, um, where they can be hotbeds for disinformation, but that data might be inaccessible for us to kind of research and see the extent on some of those closed social um, networking applications, even though it's spreading there um, from family members, friends, others as well. So I think I don't necessarily want to be policy prescriptive on what the answer is with balancing free speech versus content moderation. I think that's a big question left for, for our policymakers and um, the platforms themselves to kind of collaborate and figure out. But I think it's really interesting for us to be able to see what that extent is um, and have partnerships with the platforms so that we can access some of that data on, you know, user engagement and what's what's happening behind the scenes. So we know that in the last election, the conversation uh, in 2020, the and even in 2016, the conversation around misinformation and disinformation specifically focused on the election and democracy was really salient. And we learned after the fact that there were widespread disinformation campaigns from foreign actors trying to manipulate the outcomes of the Demo democratic elections in the West. Now we're looking forward to 2024, and we as a society know a lot more about disinformation from foreign governments and how that spreads across the new information systems uh, online. 
what do we what tools do we have now that we didn't have before and for folks who are wanting to approach the new election learning as much as they can about the truth of what's happening in democracy and in the election what do we know now that we didn't know before that's going to make the upcoming election more truthful with less disinformation or do you think that there have not been enough measures implemented since 2016 and 2020 to overcome the much of the disinformation challenges that we have had experienced? Fantastic question. And I think we're seeing a lot of really great work in this space coming from, from different entities that are looking to fact check or even research disinformation as a topic. Um, a few come to mind, like the Center for New American Security's Future Digital Threats to Democracy project. The German Marshall Fund has a digital innovation and democracy initiative. Um, and then there's a lot of different um, other centers at New America, um, Harvard, and in different entities that are really looking to, to tackle some of these big questions. So I think we're seeing a lot of the research to kind of address it. The problem is like once it's out there, um, you you can kind of correct it as well, but it relies a lot of um, like fact checking and figuring out how to stop it before the spread happens. Because you can kind of, one of the effective tools that we've seen um, from my research is when there's disinformation, one of the most effective responses is to kind of follow up on it if it's on say Facebook with a comment that really calls it out. Um, so the poster knows, but also the people that see it thereafter know. The problem is that content that was false might have already been exposed to a number of people who aren't going to go back and check that post and see that comment. And the other piece here is that that's, that can be uncomfortable to have to call out a Facebook friend from high school or something along those lines. So I think that catching it early before it can spread is really important because we can sometimes fact check it after the fact. But if someone listens to a podcast or a talk or something and gets access to that false information, they might not see that issue correction. So I think we're seeing some platforms do great work in sort of doing flags on content to say, hey, this is what users have said. Um, you should know about this content that this person's posting or, hey, you might want to double check this. Um, if someone looks to share an like a link that they haven't read. I know sometimes platforms will notify you that, hey, you haven't clicked on this and read it. Are you sure you don't want to read it before you share it to, you know, your hundreds of followers or something along those lines? So I think we're definitely seeing progress um, in some of those ways. But I think one of the other issues is that even if you're fact-checking content, um, as we talked about a little bit earlier in our conversation, people are really looking to entrench their existing beliefs. So I often stray from the term sort of like fake news because people can kind of just say that if it's something that they don't necessarily agree with rather than looking at is this reliable information? Is this trustworthy? It's kind of an easy way to sort of dismiss content that you don't necessarily want to think is true. Um, so I think looking forward, I think we're going to face some really interesting challenges around, you know, AI, chatbots, um, and, and other sort of issues when we're thinking about disinformation. But since the topic has been out there and a lot of these platforms have had time to, to think about it, um, there have been instances of progress. One thing that gives me um, a little bit of pause personally is that we've seen a lot of recent layoffs within the trust and safety community across um, a lot of these big tech platforms. And I think that 
that's a short-term solution to kind of tackle costs and issues, but I think that can have long-term implications for the integrity of the information environment and can really devalue the content quality um, when there's less content regulation of bots and other inauthentic behavior um, to really get rid of some of these entities that are spreading disinformation. So, so that's something top of mind personally, um, just seeing so many layoffs within the trust and safety community and just wondering how this topic will be handled because it's it's only going to be a more challenging um, problem in the future. That is really challenging to think about. So it seems like some steps have been made in the kind of pro um, truthful information sense and some perhaps steps have been taken uh, made taken back uh, in that space. And so we won't really know until we know how um, disinformation and the 2024 election will interact. Rachel, thank you so much for chatting with me today uh, about your work and disinformation and its impact on democracy. And I just want to uh, say as well, congratulations, because your this dissertation is going to be summarized uh, in a chapter for Defending Democracy published by Cambridge University Press coming up. So everybody who's tuning in, definitely look out for that. And that will be released in 2024. Is that correct? Yes, it'll be in Defending Democracy in the Digital Age in 2024. Wonderful. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that. And thank you again so much for uh, having this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. I'm always delighted to talk about democracy and disinformation, and it's, it's truly been a pleasure. For me as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.